What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we are here for you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Bolivia, please dial 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Gabinski is our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via, oh, YouTube, Facebook, hey, we're streaming on both those platforms right now. Just put your question in the comments box, if you would, please. And then Rich will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio. Hopefully, we can answer it on today's program. Again, the phone number, 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing great. How are you, sir? I'm doing decent. Thank you. We uh, had a couple of questions that popped up yesterday on the program uh, via YouTube that we just could not get to, so let's uh, tackle those right now. Brian G., watching us yesterday on YouTube, said, Hello, does the word Jesus, quote, paid the price for our sins go against Catholic teaching on the atonement? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, uh, you know, we can distinguish the denotation of a phrase and its connotation, and the denotation is the straightforwardly literal sense of the phrase, and Uh the connotation are all the associations that might be evoked but are not explicitly in the text. All right. There are connotations to the phrase, Jesus paid the price for our sons, particularly in the Anglo-American context, that evoke evangelical or Protestant theology. So there are people in our culture that if you spoke to and you said the phrase, Jesus paid the price for our sins, they're going to hear in your language the Calvinist doctrine of the atonement. So in that connotative sense, it would be problematic. But denotatively, there's nothing wrong with the phrase, and it actually echoes a biblical metaphor. You don't find a lot of explicit teaching in the Gospels themselves about the atonement, but one of the remarks you do find is Jesus himself, who says that Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom. And, of course, a ransom is a form of payment yeah. to, to one that is holding captives. You, you pay them off and they release captives. And so Jesus actually does refer to his own death as a ransom, i.e. a payment. Um, but the, the ransom idea, uh, it was interpreted by the Church Fathers not as a ransom paid to God, but ironically, interesting, paradoxically, a ransom paid to the devil. Mm. And that's not the primary metaphor used to understand the atonement in Catholic theology, but there is this idea in patristic theology that man was held captive to the devil and that Christ came to defeat the devil and free mankind. A completely different frame of reference, I might add, from what modern evangelicals typically hold, which is it was somehow... Um, held captive by the law of God, and God has to be paid off. Brian, thanks for your question. Here's another one that came in yesterday uh, on YouTube from Matthew in Wenatchee, Washington, who says, what does Leviticus 13.13 mean when it says that a man who is completely covered in leprosy is deemed clean? Yeah, thanks. So um, 
you know, the book of Leviticus has a, a lot of regulations about the status of people and objects as either clean or unclean. And you run into trouble understanding these passages if you, if you try to rationalize Levitical law with some principle that's not explicitly stated in the law. For example, if I say, well, you know, this obviously has to do with human health. And so, you know, people are clean or unclean because they're contagious or something like that. You can't do that. That, that you're trying to rationalize. Another way that, that people often fall into this trick of trying to rationalize the reason for the dietary laws. And I know when I was growing up, and I would ask my mother, uh, you know, why did God forbid the eating of pork to the Hebrews? And uh-huh. I was often told, well, you know, because pigs can contain trichinosis, and so you know, God knew that, so He's trying to preserve the Israelites from from uh, parasites in their food. No, that's not the reason why. That's a rationalization that modern people have applied to the text. And, uh, and, and y- you really have to let the text speak for itself. And when it comes to clean or unclean, from our point of view, there are more or less arbitrary conventions about what's, what counts as clean or unclean, and they're not, they're not sanitary uh, categories. They literally have to do with states of merely ritual purity or ritual impurity. So the things that a person could do that actually have no sort of contagion value at all from a, from a sanitation point of view, mm-hmm. that would still render a person ritually impure. And uh, the, the, the nearest analogy that I can come up with in, in modern life, and it's maybe not a very flattering analogy, but it's the best one I can do, is um, you ever see a couple of kids on the backseat of the car, and, uh, you know, a little brother reaches over and touches little sister, and little sister says, ooh, I've got the cooties now. You know, <laughs> he touched me. Yeah, right? yeah. And it's like some sort of invisible power that's passed from the, the undesirable younger brother to the, to the sophisticated older sister who doesn't want to mess with people yeah. like that, you know. <laughs> and, and that's really the idea, that they're, they're, it, it, the purpose of this, as near as we can tell in, in Hebrew worship, is the status of being clean or unclean. Uh, is is merely a symbolic gesture uh, to underscore the awesome holiness of God and the necessity the necessity of putting oneself in a special kind of state before one could approach the presence of God. But you, you ought not to try to rationalize it with respect to things like modern hygiene or health. So the reason the passage is puzzling is it says if a person has this sort of white you know pustulant breakout on their skin, they're unclean. But if the white stuff covers the entire body, they're clean. And so it doesn't seem to be infection as such that mm. rendered the patient unclean or the person unclean, but rather the, the, the mottled appearance. Yeah. You know, so if you were just perfectly white, even though it might be due to leprosy, you wouldn't be unclean because you didn't have that mottled appearance. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much uh, for your question from Wenatchee, Washington. I've got a great one coming up in just a couple of moments here from Tyson, a great opinion question that he's asking, uh, but it's going to take a while to unpack, so we'll do that after the break. In a moment, we'll be talking with Doreen in Trabuco Canyon, California. James is listening to us in Memphis today. Gibson is a first-time caller in Spokane. Uh, Jerry is listening to us in Springfield, Missouri, and we've got two lines that are are uh, full but not screened. So if a line does become available, as soon as Matthew uh, can take take care of these things, he's going to screen them as quickly as he can. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us. 
It's called a communion here on EWTN on this Tuesday afternoon. Here we are in the second week of Lent. We hope that Lent is going well and powerfully for you. Our phone number here, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. You know, with news from EWTN's Vatican Bureau, you can watch all the important events from Rome, even if you don't have access to a TV. Using the latest technology, we have made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home via live streams. You can watch live on EWTN's YouTube channel, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and X. EWTN's Vatican Bureau, what an asset uh, for all of us to know what exactly is going on there in the Eternal City. All right, in a moment here, we're going to get to the phones at uh, 833-288-EWTN. But I just had to get this opinion question posed yesterday by Tyson on YouTube. He says, Dr. Anders, why were so many people willing to follow the Protestant reformers and leave the church? Yeah, I appreciate the question. So the answer to the question is complex. And uh, there is not just one cause of the Reformation. The Reformation was a complex historical event that had, that had many antecedents and many factors. Uh, there were factors that were religious, that were sociological and demographic, economic, technological, all the rest of it. Um, cultural, uh, let, me, let me lay out some of them. So there's always been corruption in the Church, and so corruption itself was not a sufficient reason to have a Protestant Reformation. Um, in the late Middle Ages, uh, an attitude of anti-clericalism, of lay resentment of the clergy, was also pervasive, but it had been around for, say, 400 years. Uh-huh. That also wasn't, you know, wasn't entirely new. Um, there was a reform movement that started in, in Catholicism, say, 400 years before the Reformation, and it would be represented by people like Francis of Assisi and, and, uh, and, and St. Dominic, um, a poverty movement, a religious movement. Um, Herbert Grunemann's book, Religious Movements of the Middle Ages, sort of detail this um, this uh, this this striving ap- after um, an apostolic way of life and an ev- evangelical way of life that came to characterize sort of the popular spirituality of the 400 years before the Reformations. All that's also predates the Reformation. So there's this sort of effervesce- effervescence that that uh, rises to the top by the 16th century of people who are sort of frustrated with the standard um, uh, clerical approach to religion. There are these uh, there are these extra liturgical alternatives. There are things like confraternities that are very characteristic, spreading all over the uh, European continent and creating centers of liturgical and devotional activity outside the life of the clergy. Um, there's a kind of populism that comes to take hold in 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 spirituality. Um, there is resentment against the clergy, um, and then there are some technological uh, developments. The invention of the book of the printing press was hugely important for the development of the Reformation. I mean the 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 Reformation cry of sola scriptura, sort of you know to, back to the Bible and to the text, is unintelligible in a world where there are not printed books. Yeah. Right? So that that's that's another factor. There were political factors. There was. Um, you know, uh, conflict between the German nobility and the papacy, uh, between the different European powers. There were new developing social classes, the artisan classes, and not just tr- traditional sort of, you know, peasants, knights, and priests. Um, the artisan classes, uh, skilled labor, like printers, journeymen, were disproportionately more likely to become Protestant than, say, the peasantry. Mm. 
um, because there was an emerging sense of social mobility and importance. Think about the way people in Silicon Valley might think of themselves as sort of being on the cultural cutting edge, you know, both technologically and ethically. They kind uh -huh. of see themselves as a, maybe a cut above your, the riffraff of uh, middle America and those of us that live in the southeast. You know, that same kind of professional hubris characterized certain social classes and in the 16th century, and they saw Protestantism as a kind of avant-garde textual movement, maybe for the intelligentsia, that uh, that set them apart. Um, there's another. Those are other factors that weighed into it. Um, and then, you know, Luther's idiosyncratic theology of, of the priesthood of all believers and justification by faith and Scripture alone really spoke to um, uh, a populist, individualistic motif that I've already spoken to. And so you find people taking Luther in directions that Luther himself did not intend to go. Luther mm. was not a populist, but you find particularly in France, for example, um, a populist interpretation of, uh, of folks that say, hey, this is great, we don't need the clergy, we don't need the sacraments, we'll just have the Bible and Jesus and we'll be our own pope. Uh, that becomes a very popular theme, and then there's a reaction against that by people like John Calvin, who want to institute a more clerical, sacramental form of Protestantism. So there's a, there's a lot of factors that play into the Reformation, and, and you know most of the good histories of the Reformation will, will go into some of these. Um, uh, Alistair McGrath's book, um, uh, what is the name of the book? Protestantism's Dangerous Idea mm -hmm. um, is one that you might explore. I like Stephen Osment's book, um, uh, the Age of Reform, 1250 to 1550, one of my favorites. A good biography of Luther is Luther, Man Between God and the Devil by Heiko Obermann. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, there's a lot of reasons. Sure. Uh, Tyson, thanks so much for your question. And uh, if you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with today, uh, Doreen, a first-time caller in Trabuco Canyon, California, listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Doreen, a blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today? Hi, how are you? Great. Um, I have a question on Matthew 8:28. Um, we This question came up in our Bible study yesterday, and we kind of had a long discussion, but not really any answers, so... Um, it's the story when Jesus exercises the demon out of the man, and then it goes. They go into the herd of swine, yep. and the swine drown themselves. What happens to the demons after that? And then also, um, along the same lines, after an exorcist um, performs an exorcism, what happens to that demon? Do they find a new host? Um, or yeah, that's that's a great question. So, with respect to the demons in the pigs, uh, I don't think we really know. I don't think we really know. I think the text tells us, and I don't know that there's much that we can infer. I mean, obviously, the demons are not destroyed by the death of the swine because they're, they're, uh, uh, you know, they're immortal creatures, they're spirits, and they're not going to biologically die because of drowning. So we might presume that they were able to go out and do more damage in the world. Um, in terms of what happens to demons that suffer an exorcism. Again, divine revelation tells us very little. We can learn some things from the testimony of, of uh, exorcists mm -hmm. that, um, that it seems, in some cases, that these guys may be taken out of circulation, so to speak. Mm. Uh, but this is kind of speculative. We don't really know, but there, there's some evidence from exorcism that, that demons can be sent to hell and taken out, out of circulation. Whether that's permanently or temporarily, don't know. Wow. Uh, Doreen, thanks so much for your call today. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. One line open, 833-288-3986. It's called to communion here on this uh, Tuesday afternoon on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Memphis and talk with James, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. James, a blessed Lent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? 
Hey, good afternoon, uh, Tom and Dr. Anders. So my question is about blessing. I think it's a three-part question. Uh, one, when a, when a priest gives us the blessing, what does that mean, and, and kind of how does that work, uh, and what do we receive or hope to receive from that? And then how does that differ, so part two, how does that differ from, from me as a random layperson? If I have authority over, hopefully, my children or my house, um, do I have the ability to, to bless that? And if I am, how does that differ from what a priestly or apostolic blessing is? And then thirdly, uh, especially in America, you when you go to Mass on Sunday, um, most likely there are a ton of uh, extraordinary Eucharistic ministers in the Novus Ordo Mass uh, distributing communion, and many times everyone is invited up for a blessing. I'm not really sure that that's in the rubrics, but I think that everybody or many parishes do that. So when that Eucharistic minister, who is not ordained, uh, gives some type of uh, ad hoc blessing, what does that mean? I think I've heard you reference about shooting blanks before, so I'd love <laughs> to hear that again, uh, and maybe just kind of describe that and, and I guess, uh, part two to part three sure. is what what should those people be doing? Uh, sure. if, you know, when someone comes up to give them a blessing. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, before I jump into the answers, I want to recommend a book to you. Uh, the book is by Stephen Rossetti, Father Stephen Rossetti, and the title of the book is The Priestly Blessing, Recovering the Gift. And it's the best one-volume answer to the questions that you just asked that I know of. It's an outstanding book on the theology of blessing, The Priestly Blessing by Stephen Rossetti. Um, a, a blessing is a way of bringing a person or an object in, in a kind of a, you know, semi-permanent way within the orbit of the Church's prayers and intercessions. You know? So I can say, uh, you know, let's say, God bless Tom, for example. And, uh, and you know, I'm, there's that one prayer, one and done. But what if a priest were to bless an object like Tom's rosary? And, and essentially what the prayer does of the blessing of the rosary would be something like, you know, may it be the case that whenever Tom uses this rosary, that this is an occasion for him to be brought within the intercessory power of the Church. And what gives the priest the power to do this is specifically jurisdiction, that he has authority over persons and objects, uh, you know, that are within his jurisdiction. Okay. And so he can, he can um, uh, in the same way that the priest acting in the, in the confessional really does represent the tribunal of the Church and can, and can withhold or extend grace to people, right, based on his judgment, uh, the priest can, by his priestly blessing, bring someone within, you know, very intentionally within the orbit of the Church's sort of universal intercessory power. And it flows from his jurisdiction that's granted to him through his bishop. Now, um, are priests the only people that can bless? Priests and bishops, are they the only people that can bless? No. And there is an official book of blessings that the Church publishes that includes blessings that parents can say over their children. So that, that is one category of layman, layperson, that can bless, parents of their children. But you'll notice that with that particular blessing, again, the parent has a jurisdiction over their own family. And within the domestic church, uh, fathers and mothers are, as it were, and I'm going to use that qualification there, as it were, priests in their homes. Like they're not, you know, the ordained priests sure. of the Catholic Church, sure. but they function in a intercessory and authoritative fashion, um, uh, mediating God and grace to their children in a way that is analogous, although different from, um, the way priests uh, stand in relationship to their congregations or their parishes. So there is a blessing that parents can pray for their children. Now, with respect to the extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, 
Not the case. Not the case. Because there is an ordinary minister of Holy Communion, and that is the priest. Yep. And the priest or the deacon, the ordained person, they are, de- they are ordained specifically to this ministry, to the liturgical ministry. The extraordinary ministers are extraordinary. They do not have that jurisdiction. They are appointed for a very, very specific task, and that task is we hadn't got enough hands to, to physically pass out communion. Mm-hmm. They are not delegated the authority to bless. They are not. And so it is, a, it is, a, it is wrong, it is wrong, for extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion to give blessings to people. They should not be doing this. Now, um, the Vatican has issued instruction. It's mild, and nobody follows it. (laughs) But the instruction is that it's generally not a good idea to go up for communion if you're not intending to receive communion and ask for a blessing. And the reason why is you're going to get blessed anyway by the priest at the end of Mass. Right? So it's kind of redundant here. And it leads to misunderstandings like the one that you've raised. And uh, and the the funny story that I'll tell since you mentioned it, the priest in our diocese, who uh, was giving out communion, and he had an extraordinary minister next to him. And uh, this fellow walks up to the extraordinary minister with his arms crossed across his chest, and you know, Father had been you know making the sign of the cross and blessing people that did that. And he looks over, and the extraordinary minister is doing the same thing, and he shakes his finger and says, "Tisk tisk, buddy, you're shooting blanks," I meaning you you you're not you don't have the power to do this, right? <laughs> Um, and so they should not be doing that. Yeah, there you go. Hey, James, thanks so much for checking in from Memphis. Call to communion here on EWTN. Gibson is a first-time caller in Spokane, listening on his Alexa device. Hey, Gibson, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Um, first of all... Well, thank you so much for your call. What's up? Um, I'm calling because I'm, uh, you know, really interested in the Catholic faith. I grew up... Um, uh, Protestant, Presbyterian, actually, uh-huh. um, and and really want to convert, but I'm married, and uh, I know my wife isn't as on board with, you know, converting over to the Catholic Church as I am, and my question really is, am I able to, or since we're one in marriage, does it sort of have to be both together, or uh, I don't know, how does that all work? Yep, <laughs> yep, absolutely. So uh, th- your situation is one that Scripture speaks to explicitly, and you probably, I'm sure you've read St. Paul's letter to, the first letter to the Corinthians, and he talks explicitly about the case of a spouse who joins the church when, when their spouse is unwilling to join. And so that is something that's been anticipated for 2,000 years, and that, you know, the church definitely has a teaching about that. Um, your, your wife's unwillingness to join the Catholic Church does not keep you out of the Catholic Church. You certainly may join the, the Catholic faith without your wife. Now, obviously, that's that could be very inconvenient for your family, but but canonically, liturgically, there's nothing invalid about your becoming Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the only question that we have to raise is not about the legal validity of your of your becoming Catholic, and and of course, if you're persuaded in conscience that the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus and He's calling you to join, you've got to obey your conscience. You're gonna have to become Catholic. Uh, so now we just need to talk about what's the most prudent way of doing this. And um, here's what I would personally advise, having been in your situation myself before. Now, my wife is a practicing Catholic, but she didn't used to be. And I, I'm a convert, and she didn't, wasn't real happy about me converting. And, I mean, a lot of people have been through this. Here's my advice to you. Um, don't try to convert your wife. Don't try to convert your wife. And you don't have to join the Catholic Church in the most obnoxious way possible. You know, you don't have to do it in a way that seems almost designed 
to, to irritate her and to provoke her. You can take your time. Um, you can be patient. Uh, you, can, uh, you ought to be extraordinarily sensitive to her and her concerns and her conscience because she may very well feel a kind of betrayal. You, you married under false pretenses because you married as Presbyterians, and here you are you know, abandoning ship. And it's understandable that she would feel hurt by that. Um, and so you do it with a sensitivity to that. But if at the end of the day your conscience tells you you have to become Catholic, you do have to obey your conscience. And that's what I would say to her, that like Luther said, my conscience is held captive to the Word of God. I can do no other. You plead conscience. Gibson, thanks so much for your call. In a moment, we're coming back with Joseph, Jim, Jerry, Mary, and Joe on this edition of Called Communion. Stay with us. A very busy day for you and for us here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We love it that way. Keep those calls coming. Keep those questions coming. Let's go to Mary right here in Birmingham listening on the EWTN app. Hello, Mary. A blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today? Yes, Dr. Anders. I need help. Um, Do we as Catholics, do we believe that essence and existence are the same, existing at the same time? As and is this asserted by Thomas Aquinas? And my, my ultimate goal, which is a question I'm not even prepared yet for the answer for, but my ultimate goal is I'm trying to refute David Hume and um, an atheist. Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. So um, Catholics do not think that essence and existence are the same thing. We do not think that. And, in fact, it's very easy to see that they're not the same thing because I can coherently, intelligibly talk about the essence of the dodo bird. I mean, I know what a dodo bird is, right? I mean, I can, you know, I could, if I had enough biological sophistication, I could probably map out its genome for you, right? But dodo birds no longer exist. They have an essence. They definitely do, and they used to exist. They don't exist anymore. All right, so essence is what a thing is. Existence is that a thing is. What it is, that it is. And uh, anything that exists has an essence, but not everything with an essence exists. So they're not the same thing. Now, the reason we're interested in the question is because we want to apply these categories to our understanding of God. And Aquinas' position is that with every other thing that exists— to exist is one thing, and to have an essence is another thing, except in the case of God. And in God's case, God's essence, the, th- the thing that defines his nature, uh-huh. is in fact existence. So for God, God's essence is existence. In other words, God is being as such. Now, my essence as a human being is not being. It's not existence with a capital E written large, or, or B with a capital B written large. You know? uh-huh. um, my essence is, well, you know, on a good day, say rational animal, right? <laughs> but, not, but not the very act of being. Mm-hmm. But in God's case, it's the very act of being. Um, now, uh, in, in terms of refuting Hume, um, I, I love the statement of Elizabeth Anscombe, who was— one of the most brilliant philosophers of the 20th century um, and, uh, and uh, uh, in the history of philosophy, maybe, maybe one of the two or three most brilliant 
women philosophers of all time. All right. She once said of David Hume that he was a merely brilliant sophist, <laughs> which I think is just a fabulous insult. Yeah. Right? Um, and uh, this isn't this isn't exactly on point. It wasn't the um, the business about essence and existence, mm. but but um, um, Hume famously argued that the concept of a first cause was unnecessary. It was odious uh, because there was no logical contradiction involved in imagining a an effect without a cause you could you could you could conceive of rather I should say conceive you could conceive of something just suddenly coming into existence that didn't previously exist there wasn't a logical contradiction there and Anscombe points out about Hume's argument that he is confusing concept and image right to conceive of something is to have a coherent idea of it and to imagine it is to have a kind of sensible picture in the mind of something occurring they're not the same thing and she says what Hume is mistaking here, he is he he recognizes that I could have the experience of seeing something pop into, uh, like my my sensible my my sphere of sort of uh, of sensation, seemingly out of nowhere, but but I can't. But that's different from knowing that it didn't have a cause, mm. right? Because what I don't know if something just if there's no blue glowing sphere in the room and suddenly poof, there's a blue glowing sphere. I can't know that the blue-glowing sphere wasn't caused by something invisible, like, say, you know, Vulcans from outer space that have beamed it down here, right? And so he's just confusing imagination with conceptualization. And he, he does other—he makes other similar errors. Now, I think Hume is a very brilliant writer and an interesting philosopher, and he has a lot of stuff to say that's worth taking seriously. Um, I have read the Dialogues of Natural Religion. It has been, oh— you know, well over 20 years since I've touched them. So I, I don't specifically remember his argument about essence and existence as it applies, say, to the, you know, ontological or cosmological arguments. But um, but I can tell you where to go to find that kind of critique. Okay. I would I would look at um, Edward Fazer's book, Five Arguments for the Existence of God. Okay. There you go, Mary. Thanks for calling in from right here in Birmingham. Call to communion on EWTN. Let's go to Joseph now in Chicago, a first-time caller listening on the EWTN app. Hey there, Joseph. Uh, blessed Lent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Uh, blessed, a blessed Lent to both of you. Uh, Dr. Anders, can you um, uh, elaborate and then kind of expound on, um, on the difference uh, with today's world that we live in uh, between um, Jews uh, and, and Zionists? And how much of the Reformation and the early Church of the fundamentals and the Protestants, whether it's Calvin, Lutheran, and, and preceding them, had any influence in the creation of uh, the Zionist movement leading up to the Balfour and, and to uh, sure, uh, sure, you know, the British Mandate. Yep, yep, yep. Sure. So, um, a, a Jew is a religious person who uh, associates with the tradition of the Talmud and the Mishnah um, and, of course, the Hebrew Bible and, you know, some of the you know, the common institution of Judaism would be the synagogue. These things obviously can exist without Zionism. Zionism is a political movement, can be a religious political movement that advocates for the return of modern Jews to the historic Holy Land and to the reestablishment of the state of Israel. That's Zionism, and not all Jews are Zionists, and not all Zionists are Jews. Which brings us to the next question, did the Reformation have anything to do with Zionism? Um, and I would say yes, and in more than one sense. 
So the original reformers were not particularly favorable to Jews. And Luther, in fact, had some pretty horrific things to say about Jews. He wrote a polemical tract attacking Jews that some of the vilest invective ever composed by human pen. And I strongly recommend that you not read it if you want to keep your breakfast down. Wow. So he really wasn't very kind uh, to Jewish people in that respect. Um, But what they did have was a clearly apocalyptic mindset meaning they tended to think that the end of the world was nigh. Luther, in particular, thought that the Pope was the Antichrist and, you know, Jesus was going to come back imminently. And so sort of living on the edge of apocalyptic eschatological expectation was, uh, was a big part of Protestant mentality. Um, you don't see so much of that in Calvin, but you do see a lot of it in Calvin's 17th and 18th century heirs. So, so that kind of eschatological expectation became a part of the Calvinist movement. Um, that definitely played into 19th century Protestant Zionism. Um, uh, there were different hermeneutics that emerged in the Protestant movement, different ways of interpreting the Bible, and some that emerged in the 19th century privileged the interpretation of biblical prophecy in a way that was uh, tended to be a kind of date-setting apocalypticism, trying to match events in the book of Revelation or the apocalyptic passages of the Gospels and, say, the Thessalonian correspondence to contemporary events in the, in the, uh, in the lives of, of contemporary writers. And, and so they naturally recognized these prophecies of the Old Testament about the restoration of the nation of Israel, and they some of them began to take those quite literally, and eventually that gave birth to um, what we call modern dispensationalism. Mm. And that's why so many uh, fundamentalist Christians, especially in America, uh, passionately believe that the restoration of the state of Israel in 1948 is part of the unfolding of a divine plan, that it has a sort of eschatological significance, and also tends to leave them with a kind of knee-jerk pro-Israel response that, that uh, makes it nearly impossible for them to take a kind of rational approach to uh, the solution of um, international policy dilemmas. You know, they, they just, whatever Israel does must be right because they're God's people, and that's not, that's not a rational way to do business at the, uh, the level of international relations. But that's, you, you see that among some mm-hmm. Christian Zionists. Um, now, there's a, there's a, a more... There's a darker way in which the Reformation fed to Zionism, and that is Luther's anti-Jewish polemic. Um, you know, anti-Semitism is old, and it goes back way before the Reformation. Um, Anti-Semitism is not as old. Anti-Semitism is the idea that Jews represent a distinct ethnicity, not just a religion. And so even a converted Jew, from the anti-Semite's point of view, is a bad, is a bad person. Hmm. Um, that, that's modern, right? And, you know, that, that comes out of some, you know, racial theories of the 19th century and social Darwinism as, as well and sort of combines with anti-Judaism. But the vicious hatred that Luther had toward the Jews definitely characterized uh, anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism in, um, in 19th and 20th century Germany. And the Nazis, of course, were quoting from Luther when they yeah. were advocating for their quote-unquote final solution. And I think, you know, if we hadn't, if we hadn't had World War II, um, it's hard for me to imagine that we would have had 1948, that the U.N., would have voted in favor of the creation of the Jewish state if it hadn't been on the heels of this uh, of this horrible Holocaust that you know does have some antecedents in the Reformation polemic against Jews. 
Joseph, thanks so much for your call. It's called to Communion here on EWTN. Tomorrow morning, be sure to join us for Wacky Wednesday. That is a part of Women of Grace that we bring you every day, Monday through Friday at uh, 10 a.m. Eastern. That should be uh, 11 a.m. Eastern with uh, John Ed Williams. Uh, our guest is Sue Brinkman. Uh, she is our expert on the occult and New Age that's indeed why we call it Wacky Wednesday. So check it out tomorrow morning, uh, 11 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. All right, let's go to uh, Joe now in San Jose, California, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Uh, Joe, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, I, I got a pretty simple question, um, but it's, you know, it's kind of, you know, bothered me a little bit. But I know growing up, um, I was taught that when you pray, and the end of prayer, you're supposed to say, in the name of Jesus, uh, to signify, you know, that you uh, believe in Jesus Christ, and um, you're a Christian or a Catholic. Um, what if you pray and you don't say in the name of Jesus? What if I just, you know, all of a sudden something comes to my mind, and I say a simple prayer real quick, and I, and I just, you know, don't say in Jesus' name? Does, does God or does Jesus, I mean, do they recognize the prayer um, if I don't yeah, say it in Jesus' yeah. name, yes, I understand the question. Let me let me ask you something, Joe. Do you have any children? Yes, I have a daughter. All right. You probably told your daughter to say please when she asks you for something. <clears throat> but let's say you know um, y- your daughter was just starving to death, and maybe she just you know maybe she just finished a uh, you know fifty yards at the swimming competition, and and she didn't eat all morning because she was nervous and she's totally worn out, and she's sitting there panting and panting. She's about to pass out from, from you know, low blood sugar or something, and she turns to you and says, Daddy, Daddy, I need, I need a candy bar. Give me a candy bar. And she neglects to say please. Are you telling me that you, Joe, would absolutely categorically never give your daughter food if she refused to say please, or she neglected to say please? No, of course of not. Of course not. Of course not. Uh, you know, prayer is not, is not a magic spell where you have to get the incantation just right or it doesn't take. It's dialogue with God, who we hold as Christians as a loving Father. I mean, Jesus says, you know, if, if, uh, if you, you know, give good gifts to your own children, you people who are wicked give gifts to your own children, how much more the Father in heaven is going give to give, give good gifts to his kids? If, yeah. you ask, if your son asks you for, um, you know, bread, you're not going to give him a stone. If he asks you for a fish, you're not going to give him a snake. Same, he, even more so, the same disposition with God. Secondly, I'd like you to consider the prayers that we see in Holy Scripture and ask yourself the question, how many of the prayers that we find in Holy Scripture are end with the phrase, in Jesus' name? I, I, I think none of them do. I think none of them do, right? So this is, a, this is just a modern devotional tradition that emerged in evangelical Protestantism, and if it's held in a kind of literal way, that if unless you articulate this phrase, God's somehow deaf to you, that, that's just a superstition. And it certainly doesn't reflect the character of God or the teaching of the Bible. There you go, Joe. Appreciate your call. Checking in from uh, San Jose. Call to communion here on EWTN. We're going now to Valley, Nebraska, and Jim, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. A blessed Lent to you. Jim, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, and I really appreciate uh, what both of you do. I've learned an awful lot from you guys, and I just really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So when Jesus was lost in the temple, um, if he was uh, was all-knowing, why did he uh, not 
let his parents know that he was going to be there to prevent them from worrying so much about him? Yep, that's a great question. Um, you know, we can ask him when we see him. <laughs> so we're speculating here. We're speculating, but here are some thoughts. Um, this is clearly, you know, this isn't like the time that Jesus left his sneakers in the soccer field, right? Th- this this is an event that has deep symbolic significance. Did you not know that I was supposed to be about my father's business? This is in canonical scripture because it's meant to establish a close connection between Jesus, the temple, and the teaching of the law. And it shows us his his uh, divine mission, his messianic mission, his divine identity. So it happened for a reason, for a pedagogical reason, for a mystical reason, for an allegorical reason, and that's meant to be conveyed. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the question that he puts to the Blessed Mother and to St. Joseph is a reasonable one. You know, you, you know my identity. You know, you know what I'm about. Do you not? And of course they do. Of course they do. Um, and so he's not just speaking to them. He's speaking to us, to all of us down through the centuries. We, you know, Scripture tells us, the Catholic faith tells us that God allows things to happen because he intends to bring out of it some greater good. And every event in the life of Christ, every single solitary event in the life of Christ, has this great symbolic significance, this mystical significance that it, it figures for us some truth about the redemption. They're not just accidents of history strung together. They're, they're profoundly symbolic actions that tell us something about the deep structure of reality and our own relationship to God. Jim, appreciate your call. Thanks for checking in from Nebraska. Let's go to Maureen now in Omaha, probably not too far from you, also listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Maureen, what's on your mind today? Uh, My daughter left the Catholic faith a few years ago in her early 20s. I learned recently the reasons why were theodicy, and especially when it comes to children, how to explain that and also about uh, when God put the soul into a man as homo sapiens and being developed from uh, earlier, lesser above. Okay. Okay, thanks. I understand the first objection. I, I understand perfectly well why someone would find the suffering of children an intellectual barrier to believing in a benevolent God. I don't understand the second objection. Is she objecting that the idea of ensoulment is somehow in conflict with the idea of human evolution? I have directed her towards the Magic Center regarding that. She doesn't, with evolution, and when did God suddenly put, um, from like a Neanderthal, into what we'd say Adam and Eve are now, the rational being. I don't know how to concisely place this. So is, is her difficulty that she, she, she thinks there can't have been an abrupt transition? I'm, I'm trying to understand her problem. Is she saying yes, yes, there cannot yes, have been an abrupt point. transition? There cannot have been an abrupt transition. Okay, all right. So, so um, uh, let me attach each of these. Let me go after each of these. With, with respect to the question of theodicy and the suffering of children, this is probably the, the, the most serious challenge to the Catholic doctrine of God, and we acknowledge it as such. 
and it's one that Scripture acknowledges. So we find the lament in the Bible about, you know, the, 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 the victory of the unrighteous and the suffering of the righteous and God's seeming absence from human history. I mean, this is a lament that, that uh, we find in every generation. The intellectual answer to the question, it's an, and it's, it's flawless as an intellectual answer, but it's not satisfying existentially. The intellectual answer is that God allows evil because he intends to bring out of it a greater good. And since we don't have omnipotence and omniscience, and we can't see every end of, you know, of every story, then we're never in a position to say, well, I just know that God can't bring good out of this. Well, you, you, you can't ever say that. You can't ever know that God doesn't bring some good. You may say, I, I don't see the good, but you can't deny that God hasn't brought some good because you don't know what God's up to, right? Now, that answer is true as far as it goes, but it's totally unsatisfying. It's totally unsatisfying because, you know, if I'm subjected to some horrible torment, being told, well, there's a reason for it. Well, what is that reason? Well, I can't tell you. Right? That's just not satisfying. No, right? no. And so there's also an existential answer to the problem of suffering, and that is the presence of Christ in the world, that the incarnation and the atoning death of Jesus are another kind of answer, not an intellectual answer, but the answer of God with us, who enters into solidarity with the human species suffers alongside us and transforms our suffering into something worthwhile and meaningful. And we have a little intimation of that every time a kind person sits empathetically with you and listens in the face of your own trauma. And so many of us know an experience where we've had some kind of personal tragedy, some sort of personal trauma, and we are striving to find an answer. And there is no answer. We, we do not find an answer. And yet we find a person. We find a kind human being who comes and sits with us in silence, perhaps. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's comforting, and it's kind of hard to know why, but it is. It, it helps bear the suffering. Christ does that, and of course he continues to do it in the persons of the saints and, and those loving Christians around us who can, who can be present to us in those times of suffering. That is an existential but not an intellectual answer. So I think that's the, um, you know, what I have just said is likely not to convert her, <laughs> but I do think that that is the proper approach. Okay. Um, with, with, respect, with respect to the question of ensoulment, um, so the Catholic faith doesn't deny the evolution of the human species, um, nor does it deny that there can be analogs to human intelligence among, uh, uh, you know, semi-rational and non-rational animals. I mean, obviously there is a kind of animal intelligence, and we, we can see a sort of gradual building up of that until we reach something like Homo sapien. Now, what the Catholic position is, is that um, there is, you know, there is a something more that takes place with rationality such that we become capable of having abstract conceptual thought, and obviously it's going to be related to language, um, uh, that enables us to conceptualize and differentiate right from wrong, among other things. Okay, Now, um, I don't know why it would be a problem to suggest that, you know, you, can, you could have almost that and then that. And that there is a that there's a point in time when you don't have it, and then there's a point in time that you have it. Yeah. And and the ensoulment need not be thought of as God squirting a kind of cosmic ectoplasm into the human brain. You know, it's not like the addition of a substance. It really is soul from in Catholic theology is a formal reality. It's the it's it's a it's a way that things are structured and organized that give them a particular character or property. And so it's, there's nothing wrong with holding that God is the 
efficient cause that brings about that structural transformation in, in human consciousness such that it attains rationality. You don't have to imagine God, you know, sort of reaching down and dropping some foreign substance into the human person as if it were like toothpaste. Yeah. Maureen, thanks so much for your call. This is a very similar question from Mal watching us on YouTube. He says, my son is 18 years old. We raised him in our Catholic family, going to church every Sunday. He's received all the sacraments. Then he went to college, found a Bible church, and is now saying that the Catholic teachings are false. I don't know what to do to get him back. Uh, Tell him I'd really like to talk to him. I would really like to talk. I would love for him to call me and tell me about how he went to the Bible church, what he learned there, and how he's concluded that Catholic teachings are false. And I'd like to hear what teachings are false and how he knows it. Absolutely. And, uh, and I'd be very, very happy to dialogue with him about it. Um, now, you know, right off the bat, the idea of a Bible church is, you know, a, a church that takes as its rule of faith the Bible alone. Mm-hmm. Typically, the doctrine works like this. The Bible church person says, well, you're not, I'm not going to believe anything that I can't find written in the Bible. And they hold that forth as an article of faith. Yeah. Is point number one, only believe what I can find in mm-hmm. the Bible. So I would like to ask this question. Is that doctrine itself found in the Bible? Does the Bible teach that you can only hold those things that are found in the Bible? No, it doesn't. Nope. And therefore, the doctrine itself fails its own test. It's, it's, it's uh, self-referentially incoherent. Um, the Bible doesn't even name its own table of contents. The Bible doesn't specify what the Bible is. There are passages of the New Testament that reference passages of the Old Testament as authoritative, but that doesn't do any good until you can have the New Testament as authoritative as well. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's, there's, there, there's no way you can get to a canon of the Bible without bringing in the concept of sacred tradition. If you don't accept sacred tradition, then you might as well throw out the Bible because the Bible is a product of sacred tradition. So the, the whole idea of a Bible church is actually incoherent. Yeah. So Mal, have your son, or ask your son, uh, invite your son, if you will, to call, call to communion. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to ask uh, our phone screener, Matt Kabinsky, when that call comes from Mal's son, let's put him at the head of the line. Yeah. And we'll uh, we'll take care of that. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Don't forget, we do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern for you and just for you. We can uh, also direct you to the podcast, which is EWTN.com forward slash radio. Look for where it says Podcast Central. Click on that. You'll see all of our shows in alphabetical order. Just scroll down to Call to Communion. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow on the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion. Have a wonderful day and God bless. 